0: Hello, hi um, Katie mentioned it's Palm Sunday it's the beginning of Holy Week uh, we might call it unholy Week for the way the events all unfurled and uh, as I looked at Holy Week this week um, or this you know recently thinking about the sermon in particular one of the things that I kept thinking about was Why did Jesus do it? And why didn't he just bail? Why didn't he get out of there? Um, So that's what we'll be looking at. And I think part of the reason I was looking at it. Now, if any of you know me, um, you know I am always the last to find out about any current trend. Anything that's popular. um, Pop culture is like, okay. How far behind am I? This fall... I finished reading, drumroll please, the Harry Potter books. (laughs) Thank you. This winter, I watched the movies. So, yeah, Um, anything more contemporary than that, I'll catch up with in a few years probably. But one of the things, uh, I I don't know, I had no good reason for not having read them or watched them earlier. Um, None whatsoever. And so I was really, I'm, like one of those newbies who's been totally gripped by it now. I love the way the author took Harry Potter through his teen years. He starts out so nice and innocent at age eleven and he goes through all this angst and he's about fifteen and he finally, you know, turns out to be a pretty decent man when he's like 17, 18 by the end of the book. But you see you see him going through all this, you see that he's fallen, that he has doubts, he has insecurities, and He keeps putting his trust in Dumbledore. And I also love the way she gives people names that kind of describe their characters like Snape and Dumbledore, 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 Dumbledore. You know, so Harry Potter keeps putting his faith in this fallen hero who himself has inconsistencies and is flawed and is a guilt-ridden figure. And, okay, so I'm a decade behind in the analogy. Sorry, folks, that's, that's me. It's one of my endearing qualities that you can go home and laugh at. But the thing is, Hollywood knows, they've learned over the decades, uh, since, you know, the black and whites that I remember as a child, almost, that we want heroes that exhibit some humanity. Um, superheroes are fine, but even our superheroes have to have some flaws and inconsistencies and some little bit of human quality about them because we want to connect and we want to think maybe somehow I could be that hero maybe um but you know Hollywood seldom shows up when I actually have to confront my boss about something and Hollywood isn't there when you know I get in a A snit with somebody. Hollywood's not there to give me superhuman strength when I'm walking down the street and I hear somebody screaming and I've got to decide right then, am I going to get involved or am I going to keep walking? Um, Other long-term situations, like how do I be the hero when my friend's going to be going through this addiction recovery or through this recovery from an injury or a disease for years? Uh... Where am I going to get the, the stamina to help them walk through that? So whether it's something I have to work on immediately, I mean, an immediate decision to get involved or not, or whether or not I'm being asked to get in the long haul, there I just keep thinking, where do people get the the courage and the stamina and the perseverance to just go through it? And then I get back to Jesus, and it's like, There are so many times just in this last week in his life where he could have just said, "See you guys, I am out of here. I'm not going through this. You gotta be, no, not going to do it. There are so many vulnerable points. And yet he just kept going and going, going through it. And I, I want us tonight to just think about this human side of Jesus. Now, Obviously, he's God, and we know from the Gospels that he knew what was coming up. I mean, on several occasions, he tried to tell his disciples, I am going to suffer, I am going to die, I am going to be raised again. And they, they just wouldn't have it. They weren't getting it at all. So, I, But there's something that still he was he was human, because we'll see, he shed tears. He shed blood. Um, his sweat as like blood. He was obviously, in some human capacity, really grieved and gripped. And I think he he could have just said, no, I, I quit, at several points. Because if there's nothing in his story that we can learn from or grasp or take courage from ourselves, we might as well just think of it as a fairy tale and toss it aside. If we put them so high up on a pedestal, there's nothing for us in this to learn. Yeah, why bother? So I want to take us on a great romp through Holy Week here. Um, Maybe because some of us are kind of new to the faith or we've never actually put it all in perspective about what happened on each day of this week and look at some of the points at which he just could have said oh I see what's going on here and I'm out so let's take a quick romp through holy week starts with today palm sunday that was the day that Jesus fulfilled yet another prophecy of coming into Jerusalem and his disciples the 12 who were with him and the crowds around him thought this is it here he comes Pretty soon, we're going to overthrow Rome. We don't know how he's going to do it, but we're taking our country back over again. Luke 19 says, they brought the colt to Jesus. They threw their cloaks on the coat, and they put Jesus on it. And he went along, and people spread their cloaks on the road as a, to make like a red carpet for him. And when he came near the place where the road goes down the Mount of Olives, the whole crowd of disciples began joyfully to praise God in loud voices for all the miracles they had seen. Blessed is the king who comes in the name of the Lord. Peace on heaven and glory in the highest. And he could have just stopped right there and said, Look, I am not coming to be the king. And if you think there's going to be a revolution this week, you're wrong. You guys have it so wrong. Forget it. I think he could have bailed at that point. Because immediately some of the Pharisees, the religious leaders in the crowd said to him, Teacher, tell your, just rebuke your disciples. And he said, I tell you, If they keep quiet, the stones will cry out. And rather than bailing, he's saying, oh, no, this is going to happen. And you're going to hear this message and you are going to see the miracles of God. But the chapter goes on to say every day he was teaching in the temple. But the chief priests and the teachers of the law and the leaders among the people were trying to kill him. They could not find any way to do this because of all the, all the people hung on his words. Next chapter picks it up again. Keeping a close watch on him, they sent spies who pretended to be sincere. They hoped to catch Jesus in something he said, so they might hand him over to the power and authority of the governor. And if you've ever been in a situation where you have to be so guarded and careful of every word you say— Maybe you're going to tick off a partner or a spouse, and they're just going to blow on you if you look at them wrong. Or maybe, as we see constantly in our papers or on radio or whatever, you know, some, no matter what a politician says, somebody's going to get all over their case. And that constant vigilance can be exhausting. And I'm not, I am surprised that at some point he didn't, just didn't say, forget it, forget the teaching, forget this, I'm out of here, you guys... I'm not going to live under this tension. But he kept going. Um, Now, all this is taking place in Jerusalem during the week that Passover would be celebrated. So Jews were coming from all over. And there were some Greek Jews who weren't up on the latest news, apparently, of what, what was going on with this Jesus character and stuff. And so they were talking to him, and he was trying to explain to them about the need for him to suffer and die and here's where we see one of Jesus' human vulnerable moments. When he says, Now my soul is troubled. And what shall I say? Father, save me from this hour? No, it was for this very reason. I came to this hour. Father, glorify your name. And can you see the introspection there? Where the human Jesus is saying, What, what am I going to do? I... I know my father's will, but I know what's ahead. And I know my father is loving and gracious, but I know this is his will. And to me, there's a connection point with this troubling and troubled introspection here. And then the betrayals that go on during the week that Jesus knows about because of his divinity, but didn't act on even in his humanity Then Satan entered Judas, called Iscariot, one of the twelve. And Judas went to the chief priests and officers of the temple guard and discussed with them how he might betray Jesus. They were delighted and agreed to give him money. He consented and watched for an opportunity to hand Jesus over to them when no crowd was present. Now it intrigues me there's nowhere in here, like Hollywood, Hollywood, would have had Judas backed into a corner with some big thug staying there you're gonna, and saying, you're going to help us or else. There is nothing here to suggest that anyone threatened or blackmailed or cajoled Judas. This was his idea. He went to them, knowing they wanted Jesus, stopped. For 30 stinking pieces of silver, he went there to the high priest and the religious authorities and agreed to turn Jesus over to set up the scene, So they could get him. This is one of the guys who's traveled with Jesus for three years. Day in, day out. Day in, day out. Across the country. Saw the miracles. Heard the teachings. And it's just a full-on betrayal. And when your best friends bail on you, isn't it tempting to just throw it in? Throw in the towel and say, forget it. I'm done. All the disciples were dense, at least. Not all betraying, but all dense. Um, this is at the Last Supper on the Thursday of that week. One of the phrases that we hear there is that a dispute rose among them as to which one of them was to be considered the greatest. Because these guys are still thinking there's a kingdom coming. We're going to overthrow Rome. We're taking over. New rule. We're in charge. So I'm going to be, I'm going to take this role. I'm going to take that role. They're so dense. And Jesus tries to explain this to him. And he again says, look, you guys, that's not how it's coming down. I am going to suffer. I am going to die. I will be raised to life, but we're not having a new government now. So Simon Peter, who has um, very thoughtfully in the past tried to correct Jesus and say, no, this won't happen. Yeah, don't try to correct Jesus. He probably knows more than you, Peter. But Simon Peter replied, Well, Lord, I'm ready to go with you to prison and to death. This guy is so full of... Jesus answered, I tell you, Peter, before the rooster, rooster crows today, you'll deny me three times, three times that you even know me. And that happened. And imagine, again, sitting at dinner with your best friend's One of them gets up to go run an errand, and you know he's going to contact the, you know, the the armies and the authorities. And the other one is getting a little bit tipsy here. So I'm going to go to prison with you. I'll die with you. And you're like, you're going to deny you even know me. And Jesus keeps going. They go out from the meal that they're having together. They go to the Garden of Gethsemane. This is sort of on their way back to where they were staying. He settles all the disciples down, and they're just a little bit too tipsy, and they're all falling asleep, but Jesus goes to pray. He withdrew about a stone's throw beyond them, knelt down and prayed, Father, if you are willing, take this cup from me. Does that sound like somebody who's a little human there? (laughs) But not my will, but yours be done. And an angel from heaven appeared to him and strengthened him. And being in anguish, he prayed more earnestly, and his sweat was like drops of blood falling to the ground. And this is a real thing. This is a medical condition that's been documented. Hematidrosis. When you are under such, such stress, emotionally or physically, blood vessel, internal blood vessels begin to break and the blood comes out of the capillaries with your sweat. It's often been documented in prisoners awaiting execution, interestingly enough, but it's a thing. It's not part of a fairy tale. It can happen, and if that's not a human reaction to what is about to occur, I don't know what is. So why didn't he just leave? Why didn't he just keep going back to the town where they were going to stay? The soldiers come, they arrest Jesus, and then the story really speeds up. Whatever gospel you're looking at, it's hard to figure out where he is at what point. First, they take him to the Jewish authorities, where he is questioned, where he is mocked, where he is roughed up, where he is beaten. But the Jews don't actually have authority to sentence anyone to death. So they send him on to the governor, the Roman governor Pilate, Pilate just doesn't, he knows there's going to be people on both sides of the story. He doesn't want to start trouble in the city. He's trying to hand this problem off. Pilate sends him to Herod, one of the Jewish governors who happens to be in town for the Passover. Herod's looking for a bribe. Maybe some, you know, show me a few miracles, Jesus. Offer me a bribe. I can get you out of this. No. So eventually he's sent back to Pilate. Pilate is trying to get out of this because, again, all he wants to do is keep the peace, and these little rabble rousing Jews who are under their, you know, the thumb of Rome are just still threatening one side wants this, one side wants the other. Finally, Pilate, after he tries to talk Jesus out of it, and at any point, I do think Jesus could have cut a deal with any one of these guys. All right, I'll shut up. I'll go away. <laughs> All right, I'm out of Jerusalem. Take my take my team with me. Of course Jesus didn't cut a deal with anyone. So Pilate finally says fine, take him. Like, okay, so before they crucify him, they whip him. It's like okay, why torture on top of death? Why? Why didn't he just cut a deal, back out, leave his friends, save himself why end up like this? why go through with the crucifixion? where did that strength and conviction come from? he could have bailed at any point he could have just said you guys are so not worth it I'm out of here but there is, I have, I have a thesis that it was Jesus' understanding of his Father, his understanding of God, and his knowledge, and not just a knowledge of, but a deep conviction and identification with the scriptures that he knew that carried him through point by point by point. Because I bet any one of us, might have, like, just a little saying that drives us forward, a little conviction that moves us on, um, a little something we remember, an example, a person. Something moves us forward when 90% of us is wanting to withdraw. And I want to talk about what Jesus understood, both of Scripture and both of his relationship with his Father, that would have allowed him to keep going through this horrific week. He knew God's faithfulness. It's not a matter of how much faith he could screw up, how emotional he could get, how deep his knowledge and memorization of Scripture was. Whatever the circumstance, God is faithful. From the beginning of time, God's heartbeat has been to redeem, to save, to heal, to restore. That is the heartbeat of God. And God, by definition, I would say, has to be true to his promises and his character. By definition, God is loving and kind and faithful. And God, as we have known from creation, from the Old Testament, from Abraham, well, earlier than that, from Noah on, when God makes a promise... It cannot change or be broken. God's, the character of his faithfulness in the midst of any storm, circumstances, changes, vagaries of life, God is constant. He has made the promise of salvation. And he will fulfill that promise. He has made covenants with his people. He promised Abraham that all nations would be blessed through him. He promised Moses. He made this promise known to Moses again. And Moses writes in Deuteronomy, I will proclaim the name of the Lord. Oh, praise the greatness of my God. He is the rock. His works are perfect. All his ways are just, Faithful God who does no wrong, upright and just is he. Now, I can imagine as friends are failing him, leaders are turning against him, and the crowd, I mean, the entire crowd that's shouting, Hosanna, Hosanna, on Sunday, is screaming crucify him on Friday, which is one of the reasons Pilate caved to the crowd. All this turning against him, and yet the constancy of God... Abraham knew it, Moses knew it, David knew it. David writes in Psalm 145, Your kingdom is an everlasting kingdom, and your dominion endures through all generations. The Lord is trustworthy in all he promises and faithful in all he does. One of the prophets later on, Prophet Malachi, writes in speaking the words of the Lord, I am the Lord. I cannot change. Does it get any simpler than that? I cannot change. I have promised redemption. I have promised my people through Abraham, Moses, David, the people of Israel, there would be a savior. They would be rescued from their sins. And I think Jesus knew his Old Testament Bible well enough to realize that he was a part of this plan of God's. And it's the constancy and the faithfulness of God that I would believe kept him going. Because depending on where you look on Google, try Googling it, you can find lists that will tell you anywhere from, I mean, lists anywhere from 200 to 300 prophecies in the Old Testament fulfilled in the life of Jesus. And some of them he I mean he had no control over who his mother was or where he was born or what his who his descendants were he couldn't have rigged this. Like let me see let me make this list and I'm going to set about to fulfill all these so that I look like I'm the Messiah. You know the the, the prophets had foretold and Jesus knew and Jesus could see that he himself was the culmination of this faithfulness of God. The faithfulness of God, who could not do anything but keep his promises. And I don't think it surprised Jesus that this involved suffering. I and mean, because in the midst of suffering, God is still in control. This was written by the prophet Jeremiah, probably as he went through the uh, burnt-out city of Jerusalem after it had been taken over by the Babylonians. I'm reading this thinking burnt out cities around the world today that have been taken over by rebel soldiers and invading forces. He writes I remember my affliction and my wandering, the bitterness and the gall. I well remember them, and my soul is downcast within me. Yet this I call to mind, and therefore I have hope. Because of the Lord's great love, we are not consumed, for his compassions never fail. They are new every morning. Great is your faithfulness. And I can well believe that each step along the way of that horrible week, Jesus could remember that regardless of how things are falling apart around me, great is his faithfulness. God cannot change. God is not brought into existence by our democratic vote. The whole world could say they don't believe in him, and it's like a little child going, you can't see me. God exists and has to be true to his character. He cannot change. He will be faithful to his promises. And Jesus wasn't one to pick and choose out of scriptures and say, well, I like that promise, but I don't like that prophecy. And I think I'll follow that one, but uh, I'm not getting involved in this one. I mean, we love to pick and choose the parts of Scripture, and even the parts of God. You know, we, we love a loving God, a just God, a judging God. But Jesus knew his Father so well that he knew he had to take the entire character. But that character would include faithfulness. And truth to his own promises. So why are we so willing? I I don't know if I'd go through this. I, I pretty much doubt I would have this kind of courage or stamina. I mean, I can barely make it through a small local event. I can barely make it through a couple months of struggle, much less a week like Jesus had. I'm more like this. I think. I think I'm strong. I think for us today, rather than focusing on the faithfulness of God and just resting on his character, we have been trained by our society to think, well, we have to be self-sufficient. You want success, you make it for yourself. You see trouble coming, you better have the smarts to get out of it. We are... We're bent away from even believing in the supernatural as if, well, if there's a God at all, he set the world in motion, but he's not involved today. So I have to take care of myself. And guess what? We get about this far along the path in taking care of ourselves, and we start crumbling. Our own faults and our own shortcomings get in the way. We live in a a culture that just... It just doesn't even really consider or think about whether or not there, how much truth there is to this story and so many others. I, I think we're at a point now, and I'm okay with this, that we realize we can't prove God. We can't even prove the resurrection. And there's a lot of people that even would raise some pretty strong arguments against other stories in scripture. But because we can't prove it with a hundred percent, we just go to the other extreme and say, well, it's just nothing I can believe. Nothing I can believe. So we go from a hundred percent rationalism to a hundred percent relativism. Like can't know. Just nothing out there. Can't be sure. And I and I want to suggest we need to recover from that false teaching of our culture also because We can be pretty darn sure of things, and we act on them. We have the courage to get married. We have the courage to have children. We have, you know, that old analogy, y'all are sitting in chairs that you believe are going to hold you up. Um, Those of you down here on the lighter weight chairs are taking a bigger risk than others. (laughs) But we go through our life believing and trusting enough. Like I, you know... I'm going to look both ways, but if the light's red, I, you know, I think I know what to do. And I think I know what people around me will do. We know enough. We don't have to throw out all of our faith because we can't prove it 100%. I think this whole idea of our being our own superheroes and having faith in ourselves also shows up in ways where we think, um... Well, if I know enough about God, if I've memorized enough of scripture, or maybe it's if my emotions are strong enough, if I show Jesus how really, really strong like, I believe, and, you know, and the tears are coming and all that. And that can't be the basis of what we live off of either. I had this picture of a bunch of us sitting around like the Thanksgiving table, and you've got, you know, Grandpa over here, who's got dementia and is a cranky old person. I mean, he used to be pretty nice, but he's just an old crank now. He doesn't remember anything. So if he had any knowledge of scripture at one point, he don't have it now. And maybe there's that cousin with autism who, you know, if if Jesus is counting, you know, if, if you need a certain amount of emotion to prove to Jesus, you're in trouble because you know what? They can't express emotion. So maybe that, I don't know about that cousin. Or what about that other? What about your little sister, the one with Down syndrome, who's never going to learn, who's never going to be wise and super educated? Well, we better hope that the faithfulness of God applies even when somebody cannot learn. And what about good old Uncle Ben? He had a stroke and he can't even talk anymore, so he's not going to be able to praise Jesus or witness to Jesus. Is he out now? You see, what I'm trying to say is God's faithfulness is secure and stable regardless of the depth of the insecurity or insufficiency of our own lives. I've told this story before that um, my first trip to Africa, they told me to take a certain drug called Larium as an anti-malarial. And the manufacturer's website will tell you that one in 10,000 people experience psychosis taking that drug. I always was the one in 10,000 person. And the final diagnosis a few months after that trip was depression, paranoia, anxiety disorder, and secondary post-traumatic stress. Believe me, I did not feel God at that point. I was feeling nothing. My memory had almost been wiped out. Craig can tell you some of the things that I did and... Didn't remember doing them. I mean, I'd call people to meetings and have no idea, no memory. They'd all be there, and I'd be home. It's just another example of how when our society tells us to be our own superheroes, to ramp up our own faith, to screw up our own emotions, to spend ourselves on learning about god that none of that can carry us through as the simple foundation and security of knowing that god himself is faithful by nature by character and he has to keep his own promises i think the fourth thing that keeps us from having that kind of faith that jesus had is just it's a faulty theology it just says well god is my buddy he can't want me to suffer oh man there's a verse in Hebrews chapter twelve, verse four, In your struggle against sin you have not yet resisted to the point of shedding your blood. And I remember a friend reading that once and saying, Hell, I haven't even I haven't even suffered to point of my own convenience to resist sin. It's like, yeah, I I don't even want to be inconvenienced. surely a loving God wouldn't want to inconvenience me. Um <sighs> We will suffer and nature suffers too as a result of the fall, and the Lord is in the process of redemption. But please don't think that God exempts us from what happens down here in this world. Do you remember that there was a meme going around at some point where the guy is sitting with on the park bench with Jesus, and the guy says, why do you allow all this suffering and poverty and famine and heartache in this world. And Jesus looks at them and says, I was just going to ask you the same question. <laughs> the idea being that so much of what we suffer through is produced by the corporate sin around us and our sins toward each other. And we can't supersize our own emotions or intellect or willpower enough. But the faithfulness of God in his nature and character can carry us through. I would suggest that in order to follow Jesus in the life he has for us, um, in order to have a a functioning, useful understanding of this airy-fairy concept of God's faithfulness, there's, there's a few things we can do. And number one is just to begin to appreciate consistency. And again, we live in a culture that says every year you better upgrade it. And if it's not working, 100% throw it out. And I don't care if that's your phone or a marriage. We are so used to novelty and change that for me to stand here and say, isn't it great that God is consistent? Like, that's as exciting as watching paint dry on the walls. But yet, I bet every one of us can think in life of an example where we are so glad that something stays the same. Maybe it's a Christmas tradition. Maybe it's going home again. Maybe it's your pet. We, we need to increase our appreciation of the very idea of consistency because we don't like being dependent on God. We, would rather, we are constantly trying a new way to handle life ourselves. And it's just not, it just doesn't sound sexy to say thank God for his consistency and his faithfulness. And then in persevering as Jesus did, we see that strength is built over time. There's simply no shortcut. So, you know, if you're if you're 25, don't beat yourself up for acting like you're 25. If you're 63, I'm not going to beat myself up for acting like I'm 63. This is a lifetime. Perseverance is the only way to grasp certain things that simply can't be picked out of a hat and applied immediately. So if it's hard today, get through today. If it's hard again tomorrow, get through tomorrow. The Apostle James put it this way. You know, and I kind of want to punch him in the face the way he starts out here. Consider it pure joy, my brothers and sisters, when you face trials of many kinds. You're right. Because the testing of your faith produces perseverance. Let perseverance finish its work so you may be mature and complete, not lacking anything. It's a a daily thing. And again, we love the novelty, we love the change, and something in us wells up to want to be our own messiahs. Rather than just concentrating on that foundation of the faithfulness of God, and I've got this picture in my mind. The um, I went to a I studied in Prague, and at one point they decided they were going to move this entire seminary from Prague to Amsterdam. Now, if you know anything about Amsterdam, it's absolutely flat there, maybe three feet above sea level, and the move of the seminary was very much delayed for a few years because before they could move the library, they had to totally reinforce the floors of the building they were going to put it in or the whole thing just would have sunk right down. Um, you know, that's, that's how shallow the table was on which you could build land there. And the weight of a library would have sunk the building, which I always found kind of amusing. But the idea is, you know, it, I think it's a good thing to learn I think it is a good thing to know the scriptures the way Jesus did. To see your proper place in God's plan. Not that we're going to see ourselves as Messiah. But to understand and to know and to be able to recall. If you love somebody, you want to know them every little detail of their being. Do we do that with God? But that foundation, under it all, the attributes of God and his faithfulness. We can see, I mean, there's examples throughout history. You know, if you don't want to go all the way back to Jesus or even other biblical figures, you can look at early martyrs. You can look at um, people who translated the Bible into English, like John Wycliffe and were burned at the stake for translating the Bible into English. William Wilberforce, I mean, he's a great example of someone who persisted and persevered because of his faith in God, despite the opposition in trying to end slavery. Uh, Dietrich Bonhoeffer in Germany in World War II. I mean, his life was on the line so often as he started an underground seminary and worked against Hitler. And eventually, he too died. But what kept him going forward was this belief and faith in God. Martin Luther King, um, why didn't he just get a day job and get out of this dangerous activist-speaking prophetic tradition? I've used here the example, too, of Kayla Mueller, who was um, killed by ISIS a few years ago at the age of 28. And some of the letters that she wrote home during her imprisonment about feeling like she was in free fall, but captured in the hands of God at the same time. I need to refrain, reframe my life from being my sole responsibility to build up enough energy and guts and courage and stamina and will, to resting in the faithfulness of God. Because it's that character, I fully believe, will carry us through. Um, I've heard recently somebody say, faith is not the absence of doubt, it's the ability to move forward even as doubt is pursuing you. And I think that is the kind of faith that we see when we look at the human side of jesus he cried he was troubled he sweat blood he went forward he knew god's will and he trusted his god and he did it and i think that's that's the lesson for us in all of this it's not a fairy tale and there is something for us we're not the messiah but there is something for us to imitate to hang on to the character of god and his faithfulness We'll go into a, a time of communion now, and I'll read more of that, that Last Supper story, because that's where it all started. And please know that you're invited into this celebration. Everyone, we are invited not because we're worthy of it, because we're such superheroes that we deserve to sit down with God. And it's not even because, um, well, at least I'm more worried than, well, I won't mention anybody's name, But it's not a comparative story that, you know, my worth is better than someone else's. We're invited into this because God is worthy. God is worthy. And I'll go ahead and read the story from Luke 22, um, the actual Last Supper story where all this began. There's an extra cup in here because they were eating a Passover meal, and there was actually four rounds of eating and drinking. Um, So don't let that confuse you too much. When the hour came, Jesus and his apostles were reclining at the table. Maybe I should go back to that picture. There go. Reclining at that table, and he said to them, I've eagerly desired to eat this Passover with you before I suffer. For I tell you, I will not eat it again until it finds fulfillment in the kingdom of God. And taking the cup, he gave thanks and said, Take this and divide it among you. For I tell you, I will not drink again from the fruit of the vine until the kingdom of God comes. And he took bread and gave thanks and broke it and said to them, gave it to them, saying, This is my body given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And after the supper, he took the cup again and said, This cup is the new covenant in my blood poured out for you. And that's when they started arguing about who's going to be greatest in the kingdom of heaven. Adults, they didn't get it. As we come and we can take the bread or the gluten-free crackers and we can dip it in the grape juice, which we're using instead of wine. It's because Jesus said, do this in remembering me. And he offered this to probably 12 of the, well, yeah, 12 of the most thick-headed, unreliable people in the world. And he offers it to us. Because of the faithfulness of God to keep his promises, we remember it this way. So do we have anybody who's planning on holding the bread and the the cups for us? That would be great. And uh, let's pray. We're thankful for this symbol, Father, and we're thankful for all of Holy Week, even though it was the most unholy week for Jesus. We are thankful for his courage to go through with what he understood to be your will. Um, we are thankful for his humanity that we can identify with. Father, help us to position ourselves not to be Messiah, but to be more than worms. Help us to be grateful and help us to be relying fully on your faithfulness. Amen. Amen.